0: Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to The Dark Parts, a show where we explore the darkest parts of history, the world, and your mind. I'm your host, Heath, and with me today, as always, is the lovely Queen of Scream, Daphne. Daphne, how you doing? I'm
1: good. I need to wake up with this episode. It's 5.30 and it's dark outside, like this time change or the- Oh, I hate it. it's It's making me feel like an old woman, like I- it's dark, and now I want to go to bed, and it's I feel 5.30 like it just, p.m.
0: Yeah, it just makes everybody feel more tired. I know. It's so weird.
1: It's so weird. So I'm ready to wake up with some zombies.
0: Yeah, so glad to be back from our break. We had a little Thanksgiving break. It was really great to see family and get all fat on Thanksgiving food. And now we're here to talk about some walking corpses. So, when you think of the world ending, do you picture yourself with a go-bag, maybe a machete, and a crossbow? Well, if this is you, you're definitely not alone. In fact, 14% of Americans believe that a zombie apocalypse is imminent. Maybe people are watching too much Doomsday Preppers, maybe The Walking Dead is their favorite show, and the thought of blasting a walker with a nail-spiked baseball bat gives them a nice little tickle in the pants. Who knows? But could those decaying creatures actually be real? And if so, is it far-fetched to believe that a horde of brain-eaters could someday take over the world? Well, today we're going to get into the headshot history and mind-munching mystery. So, put on some cranberries, head down to the Winchester, have a pint, and wait for all of this to blow over. Because we're coming to get you, Barbara, in today's episode that we call The Living Dead.
2: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Before we get into today's episode, let's define what a zombie is. According to the Merriam Webster Dictionary, a zombie is a willless and speechless human, as in voodoo belief and in fictional stories, held to have died and been supernaturally reanimated. And if you haven't seen the 1985 classic film Reanimator, you are truly missing out on some classic zombie fun. Now, long before the word zombie ever entered into any mainstream culture, the ancient Greeks were afraid of reanimation. So archaeologists have found skeletons that were weighted down by heavy objects, including rocks, so that the dead would stay dead. But moving a little further in time in the 17th century, the Haitian culture would mark the true beginning of the zombie and its past is actually rooted in slavery. African slaves were brought over to the Caribbean to work in the sugarcane fields under horrible conditions. And many of these slaves contemplated suicide, but they resisted taking their own lives because they actually feared that even after death, they would remain slaves, like in the afterlife. When the Haitian revolution finally ended French colonialism in the region in 1804, the development of the voodoo religion began. And by the way, there are a few ways of spelling the name of the religion. Like some say it's V-O-O-D-O-O and others claim it's V-O-D-O-U or even V-O-D-U-N, which is
0: rooted in French and Haitian culture. But let's talk a little bit about uh, what Haitian voodoo actually is. It's a religion that's mainly based, of course, in Haiti, South America, Africa, and the U.S., And it's based on ancestral spirits and patron spirits, and unlike how it may appear to be represented in the media, it shows strong sources of religious healing. So, how does this pertain to zombies? Well, a bokor, a male, or a kaplata, a female, is known as a voodoo witch for hire. And I'm really hoping that I didn't pronounce those two wrong, I probably did, Uh, but these witches have the ability to practice not only good, but evil as well. They're known to use herbs, fish, shells, and other animal products to create potions known as zombie powder. And I forgot to mention uh, that the early mentions of zombies spell the word without the E on the end. So how do these witches make these potions? Well, they combine different toxins including tetrodotoxin which is a deadly neurotoxin found in pufferfish and other marine life which causes its victim to go into a zombie-like state including difficulty walking or walking straight, extreme mental confusion, and respiratory issues. Very high doses of this can also lead to paralysis, coma, and ultimately death, or the appearance of death. These are like really scary symptoms. Yeah, and, and we're going to be talking about how this is used in, um, or at least the appearance of death is used in some of this. So, what would this be used for? In an interview from 1943, a researcher studying the effects of these spells said, quote, "...a zombie is supposed to be the living dead." People who die and are resurrected, but without their souls. They can take orders, and they're supposed to never be tired. And to do what the Master says. So, the answer is, yet again, slavery, basically.
1: An ethnobotanist named Wade Davis also studied the effects of zombie powder and wrote a book about it titled The Serpent and the Rainbow, a Harvard scientist's astonishing journey into the secret societies of Haitian voodoo, zombies, and magic. That title probably sounds familiar to a lot of you and we're going to get into that. So Wade studied one man in particular named Clervius Narcisse, who was a man that was believed to have been turned into a zombie after a concoction of drugs had been used on him, including, of course, pufferfish, but also toad venom. On April 30th, 1962, at 9.45 p.m., Clervius was not in a good way. He had been complaining about body aches, a high fever, and had started to cough up blood. He was quickly deteriorating, and he was suffering from hypothermia, hypotension or low blood pressure, digestive disorders, and more. Then a couple days later, on the morning of May 2nd, 1962, two American physicians finally pronounced Clairvius dead after inspecting him, and he was buried the very next day. But of course, this would not be the end of Clairvius because 18 years later, his sister Angelina was walking one day through the village marketplace when she was approached by someone who claimed that they were Clairvius. And again, I mean, this is 18 years later, so imagine how she feels her deceased brother is coming up to her, apparently, allegedly, and saying, yeah. hello, I'm your brother. Yeah, He's she, dead.
0: she watched her brother be buried.
1: Yeah, and he was able to identify himself using his childhood nickname that only Angelina would have known. And he described that after he was officially pronounced dead, his skin felt like it was on fire and bugs were crawling under his skin. He remembered Angelina crying by his bedside and the white sheet being pulled over his face. Even as he was being buried, He was lucid but aware as the nails were being driven into his coffin.
0: I can't think of a more horrifying thing in my life. Didn't we
1: talk about this in our Buried Alive episode like two years ago?
0: We did, yeah. We actually did talk about that. Uh, I think we actually talked about Clairvius in particular. But yeah, it's just, that's such a horrifying thought to be watching. And if you've seen the movie uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow that scene where Bill uh, Bill Pullman is in the coffin and there's like dirt being dropped on top. You're just like, oh my God. Can't. Claustrophobia. Can't imagine, cannot imagine. The only thing was that Clarvius was not aware of time and could not tell how long he had been buried for, but he does remember a Bocor retrieving him from his grave only to beat and torture him into submission and sell him off to a plantation where he would become a slave and work for many years. He remembers working from sunrise till sunset, every single day with no breaks, under a dreamlike state, devoid of will to do anything else. In an act of heroism, one slave working alongside Clairvius was able to grab a gardening tool and kill his captor which allowed all of the other drug-induced zombies to escape the plantation. And I say zombies kind of loosely because they were being drugged up and that's what they appeared to be. These were like real people though. Yeah. So Clairvius would then spend the next 16 years wandering aimlessly through the countryside in Haiti, and he only returned to his village after the death of his brother, whom he surmised was responsible for the Bokor's zombie curse. So basically he was like, "Uh, I'm not going back there until my brother's dead because he's the dude that did this to me. So Clairvius was then given a set of tests to confirm his identity. And when it was all said and done, it was proved that the man claiming to be Clarvius was truly who he said he was. Now, Wade Davis's book was released in 1985 and then two years later in 1987, His book was turned into the unsettling film, The Serpent and the Rainbow, directed by none other than Wes Craven and starring, like I said, Bill Pullman. Now, are you getting sick of these movie references yet? That's what The Dark Parts
1: is. It really just is.
0: But how did zombies
1: make their way into American culture? So when the United States occupied Haiti in 1915, an American by the name of William Seabrook became aware that zombies existed, saying, quote, The supposed zombies continued dumbly at work. They were plotting like brutes, like automatons. The eyes were the worst. They were in truth like the eyes of a dead man, not blind, but staring, unfocused, unseeing. Then, 17 years later, the film White Zombie was created, that was in 1932, and it depicted an American couple in Haiti with plans to get married when a plantation owner falls in love with the woman and enlists the help of a voodoo doctor to cast spells on the woman's fiancé in order to kill him off. Now, in American culture, this really stoked fear of voodooism, but also had quite a bit of racial undertones to it. Not to mention the zombie cocktail created in New York that is literally made with rum and sugarcane, which is pretty fucked up because like we were just talking about, slaves helped harvest sugarcane, and then here's this drink in the US and it has sugarcane and rum in it. So the reason we say this is because years later in the 1940s, a new zombie rose to power called the Atomic Zombie. And this particular zombie had to do with the Red Scare and fear of the rise of communism. In a comic book called Corpses, Coast to Coast, the story talks about unionized gravediggers on strike, sending corpses through an indoctrination tank, turning them into zombies who then form a coalition called the United World Zombies, who eventually take over the White House and then the world. And we also saw this with the film Creature with the Atomic Brain, released in 1955 about like a zombie Nazi scientist who uses radiation to like reanimate corpses for world power. Lots of wacky films out there. Yeah,
0: so it's like they took this whole fear of voodooism and they mixed it with like other things that they were fearing at the time, like communism and these other things, and then they just mushed it all together into a story. Now, we've already told you guys about one instance of a real-life zombie, but let's take a look at a few more that have been verified to be true. In 1997, two scientists published articles in the Lancet paper that analyzed three individuals who are apparently verified to be certified zombies. Certified zombies? I guess, that's what they're calling them. So the first case was a 30-year-old woman who had fallen ill and died, but was recognized three years after her death walking amongst the living. In the case, the woman suffered from a rare condition called catatonic schizophrenia, which makes a person appear to be in a zombie-like daze walking in a stupor. Now, how she was able to survive her death is still a mystery. The second case was of an 18-year-old man who died under suspicious circumstances, and 18 years later was found at a cockfight with no recollection of how he got there. And the third was of an 18-year-old woman who simply appeared to have a learning disability, but not much is known about her case and why these scientists believe that she was among the walking dead. What's really interesting is a condition called Cotard syndrome, also known as walking corpse syndrome, where an individual believes that they have either lost organs, blood, or body parts, and therefore believe that they have lost their soul or are actually dead. It's a very rare neuropsychiatric condition that was discovered by Dr. Jules Cotard in 1882. One case in particular described a 53-year-old Filipino woman whose family called 911 after she described that she was dead, smelled of rotting flesh, and wanted to be taken to the morgue to be surrounded by other dead people. She was eventually prescribed many medications including olazepine and lorazepam, And after a few months of treatments, was able to break her paranoid delusions and, quote, expressed hopefulness about her future.
1: So now we know what zombies are, where they originated, and their main purpose.
0: Brains.
1: But we didn't talk about why that's a thing. Why is that a thing,
0: eating Um, brains? I don't really know, because if you're a zombie, uh, it's not like it's going to do anything for you. I guess, I don't know, they eat flesh too, right? Why? Yeah, why? I don't really know. But anyway, so what if a zombie apocalypse
1: really did come to fruition? What if you found yourself trapped in your home while a horde of plague-stricken brain-eaters take over your town? What would you do to survive? Would you have what it takes to live? Well, in author Max Brooks's hit book called The Zombie Survival Guide Complete Protection from the Living Dead, which was released in August of 2006, he describes in detail what you need to know to survive a zombie apocalypse. I was gifted this by my friend in ninth grade, and I, I, think was I too. still have it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here are 10 points that he covers in his book one, organize before they rise. Two, They feel no fear, why should you? Three, use your head, cut off theirs. Four, blades don't need reloading. Five, ideal protection equals tight clothes, short hair. Six, get up the staircase, then destroy it. Seven, get out of the car, get onto the bike. Eight, keep moving, keep low, keep quiet. Nine, no place is safe, only safer. And 10, the zombie may be gone, but the threat lives
0: on. Here's a description of this book. The Zombie Survival Guide is your key to survival against the hordes of undead stalking you right now. Fully illustrated and exhaustively comprehensive, this book covers everything you need to know, including how to understand zombie physiology and behavior, the most effective defense tactics and weaponry, ways to outfit your home for a long siege, and how to survive and adapt in any territory or terrain. Now, I personally could go over this entire book, but to be honest, that could be an entire episode in itself. So I figured I'd highlight a bit of what Max talks about, and if you're interested in learning more, go out and purchase the book. It's a really fun read, and it may just save your life.
1: First, let's talk about what Max describes as being the reason for this zombie apocalypse in the first place. The virus in the book that takes over and uses living human hosts to like conquer the world is what he calls selenum. Other names for this virus include African rabies, the walking plague, and the blight, and it essentially uses the cells of the brain's frontal lobe for replication, destroying them in the process. After the brain is infected by said virus, all your bodily functions cease, which include the heart and lungs, and personality, humanity, and individuality are all lost. The viral incubation period varies from person to person, meaning it could take hours for a person to turn, but also could take just minutes. The virus can spread through open cuts and wounds, but most notably through bites. Here is a brief and general description of how a person would turn, obviously given their viral load.
0: Hour 1, pain and discoloration around the infected area. Hour 5, temperature between 99 and 103 degrees, chills and dementia, vomiting and acute pain in joints. Hour 8, Numbing of extremities and the infected area. Oh, that's nice. Increased fever ranging between 103 to 106 degrees and loss of muscular coordination. Hour 11, paralysis in the lower body and slowed heart rate. Hour 16, slip into coma. Hour 20, heart stops and there is zero brain activity. You are legally dead at this point. Hour 23, reanimation occurs. Congrats, you're now a zombie. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha
1: According to zombie.fandom.com, quote, The transformed brain does continue some minor activity as the zombie will reanimate and hunt and consume anything it identifies as living its preferred prey is humans, choosing to chase a fast human over any animal that it might catch more easily. Some bodily functions remain constant, others operate in a modified capacity, and the remainder shut down completely, which is why zombies are commonly referred to as the living dead. The virus mutates each infected cell into a sort of organ, independent from every other cell, and the physiological tasks it once performed for the human. They also produce a great deal of oxygen, which was noted by a surgeon in a Rio de Janeiro clinic, which circulates throughout the body. By removing the need for oxygen, the undead brain can utilize but is in no way dependent upon the complex support mechanism of the human body. The energy source of the zombie remains a baffling mystery to science, as a zombie will continue moving indefinitely without food, water, or rest. Even when a zombie does consume an organism, as we said, selenum virions and infected cells do not draw energy from the flesh like living cells would the flesh merely remains in the digestive tract of the zombie until it rots Or newer flesh presses the human remains out of the anus. Or if the zombie has a torso wound, a rupture in the abdomen. Very, very appetizing stuff.
0: So basically a zombie does not shit. It just waits for flesh to fall out of its butt, (laughs) (laughs) essentially. What a way to put it. Yeah. So, now again, we could create an entire episode on this book, but let's just move forward into what weaponry might keep you alive and what weaponry would probably just get you killed right off the bat. Now, a lot of you guys have watched shows like The Walking Dead, so I may not be telling you anything that you don't already know. But for the sake of this episode and some fun, let's get into this topic. First, we'll start with what you could use to survive and how that particular weapon is effective. First, blades, which include machetes, forearm blade swords, steel swords, knives, hatchets, and tomahawks. Now, why are these effective? Well, they're lightweight, can be attached at the hip for optimal carrying, and you can use them for other purposes, including making your way through rough and heavy brush terrain, and most importantly, they are very quiet. Something that's very important uh, when maintaining a low profile, obviously. So, next we have the hammer. It's dual purposed with each side having a killing mechanism, and most of the weight of the hammer sits at the head. So, this gives power with each swing. Sledgehammers, on the other hand, have too much weight, creating a problem when trying to swing them effectively. Like, I can't even imagine if you were trying to just swing a sledgehammer, like over and over hitting zombies, you just get really tired. Unless you're like exceedingly strong. Yeah, exactly. So next we have the infamous crossbow or bow and arrow, which has its pros and its cons. feel like more cons. Ah, we're gonna see. So the pros are that it's a quiet weapon with sniper-like accuracy that will allow you to make the kill shot without attracting much attention. Now the downside here is that it depends on the situation. If you were trapped inside of a fenced area, you would need an arsenal of arrows, and even then, you may run out. Remember, if this weapon is the one that you choose, you will have to be diligent in retrieving those arrows for further use. So, that makes a lot of sense, because if you shoot a zombie, you're going to have to go get that arrow uh, again, so it could put you in danger.
1: That's true, and... I feel like also with the bow and arrow, it's, it would be great if you're from a distance, you see one. But yeah, then you have to go and grab the arrow. And also, what if they're coming at you? You have to be at a certain distance away and have enough time to load your bow with the arrow. Sure. So yeah. it's it doesn't seem super practical. So those are just a few examples of weapons that could serve you well in a zombie attack, but now let's talk about weapons that you should never use against a zombie. First, a flamethrower, and here's why this is a bad option and could make matters a lot worse for you. Now, we know that to kill a zombie, you must destroy its what? Its brain. And that bodily harm will not just do the trick. Like if you chop off its arm, not gonna do shit. And this is why a flamethrower would be very ineffective because you're more likely to torch a horde catching them on fire but not killing them which A creates danger for yourself because you definitely don't want to light the building you're hiding in on fire and B it ultimately will not kill them and if you thought you had it bad before just imagine hundreds if not thousands of the living dead like engulfed in flame but still marching towards you that's just so much more dangerous yeah it's
0: just a lot worse
1: (laughs) but also you have to consider fuel and in a zombie apocalypse this is a resource that might not be easily and readily available to you and so this therefore gets a pass from us
0: yeah we will not be using in a zombie apocalypse
1: next we have a chainsaw my least favorite weapon on earth (laughs) it's extremely loud and not effective because it's slow sawing ability so if you've ever watched someone cut wood with a chainsaw you know that the cutting time is longer than i don't know let's say like a swift swing of a machete especially if you're in close combat which you would have to be if you use the chainsaw it also requires fuel so again a no-go from us And lastly, we have small caliber guns and machine guns. So using like a 22 caliber gun will probably not get the job done. And we're not saying it can't, but if you're facing like a horde, the odds may be stacked against you. It's also a very loud weapon, much like the chainsaw and will undoubtedly attract more zombies. And this is also why a machine gun would not be effective and may just be more of like a last resort weapon. The accuracy alone would become an issue in destroying the zombie's brain, but we also have to consider ammunition as a possibly scarce resource in this scenario, which we would imagine would be. And then also like spraying bullets aimlessly is not a good look for anybody. And in the comments section of this episode, please let us know what your weapon of choice would be and why, and also which ones you believe wouldn't get the job done job done because job done it'd be a fun fun conversation to have
0: (laughs) oh yeah i definitely want to see what you guys think and like what you would use i mean uh i'm sure one of you at least one of you is going to say a javelin i feel like that's coming but what about a smarter class of zombie ones that retain some of their old self and are able to organize We see examples of this in films like I Am Legend and George A. Romero's Land of the Dead, which features zombies who the virus couldn't completely change. The undead who have evidence of thought and are able to use weapons as we do in their ultimate fight for fleshy food. In the film Day of the Dead, we see the likes of a domesticated zombie named Bub, who is able to feel emotion and can handle firearms with ease. Much like Frankenstein, he adores the man who trained him, Dr. Logan. And when Logan dies, he's on a mission for revenge. So actually it's kind of sweet that uh, Bub is such a sweet little zombie. These are a few of the traits that intelligent zombies are said to possess. They can use weapons and tools. They can control their hunger for humans. They're not as dim-witted as normal zombies. They can communicate in English or whatever language they're used to speaking. In extremely rare cases, they can form friendships or relationships and bond with humans. So maybe it's not all that bad when considering a more capable zombie, but I guess that depends on which movie you actually watch.
1: So what are your chances of surviving a zombie apocalypse? Well, according to one article, if you live on the East Coast, you're pretty much screwed. So the reasoning is that states like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Florida are much more densely populated areas, which is obviously cause for concern when your fellow humans are turning into zombies in front of your eyes. The other reason is because there is less farmland and Eastern states average only 4% in solar electricity, which is something that would prove quite handy in a zombie situation. The top states, according to this article, to live in during a zombie apocalypse are North Dakota, Nebraska, South Dakota, Iowa, and Kansas. So if you're in one of those states, you're in a definitely in a better situation. But then Oregon, for example, where Heath is from, where we live for a few years, sits at 21 on the list. And California, where I'm from, where we live now, you know, we can consider ourselves lucky because our state is actually ranked at seven. So it's not too bad. I am actually really surprised that California is higher on the list than Oregon.
0: Yeah, I think it's because there are two bigger cities in california but california is a very large state that's true there's a lot of rural land that's what i'm saying yeah
1: but truly your chances are about zero in general so let's not get our hopes up here because according to one study after the first 100 days there would only be about 273 uninfected humans in the world So I I don't know. I I always think it's interesting when people talk about zombie apocalypses and how much they're going to fight to survive. And it's like, survive for what? Your family's probably dead. All your friends, life as you know it, it ceases to exist.
0: Why do you want to live in a world like that anyway? Yeah, I don't know how they actually came up with the figure to, to figure out, you know, how 273 people would be unaffected in the first 100 days. I don't know how they did that, but that's what it says.
1: So the CDC actually has a little guide that might help you last longer than expected. So here's what its website compiled as a list for survival released in 2012. Water, one gallon per day. Food, stock up on non-perishable items that you eat regularly. Medications, this includes prescription and non-prescription meds. Tools and supplies, utility knife, duct tape, battery powered radio, etc. Sanitation and hygiene, household bleach, soap, towels, etc. Clothing and bedding, a change of clothes for each family member, and blankets. Important documents, copies of your driver's license, passport, and birth certificate. And lastly, first aid supplies. Although, you know, you're a goner if a zombie bites you anyway. So I guess you can use these supplies to treat like basic cuts and lacerations that you might get during maybe, I don't know, a tornado or hurricane is what it says. So, But I think it's interesting that it says important documents.
0: Yeah, it's like if this actually were to happen, people would just be like, fuck this. You're... You're not going to let me across the border. Like, I'm just going to kill you. Because at this point, if you you watch the show The Walking Dead, it's almost like humans are against humans, but they're also against zombies because you're fighting for survival and resources as well. So Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, I don't really know how far your passport's really going to get you.
1: But I also just feel like if you're in that kind of situation, your passport and your birth certificate are not going to be amongst the things that you grab when you're, you know, trying to flee your area or whatever, you know?
0: Yeah, it's probably not the first thing I think of. So it's no surprise that the modern zombie has become a household sensation in America. And in fact, in 2013, The Walking Dead drew in 17.3 million viewers, which marked the show as the most popular show on television that year, just ahead of Sunday Night Football. With video games like Left 4 Dead, The Last of Us, and Red Dead Redemption, and films like Night of the Living Dead, World War Z, and Dawn of the Dead, we've created something that is so popular that it even affects the way we think in our day-to-day lives. According to historian Kelly Baker, who is the author of Zombies Are Coming, she says that, quote, Zombies are a way that we can work out some of the things that make us nervous. Among those worries is fear that modern life could easily unravel. Most of us take our political and social institutions, as well as necessities like clean water, power, and grocery stores full of food for granted. But a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, or civil unrest can disrupt all of those things. They really are pretty fragile. The American fascination with the zombie apocalypse and the the end-of-the-world scenarios reveals an underlying distrust of our neighbors. In a zombie apocalypse, it's everyone for themselves, and a friend can turn into a monster at a moment's notice. Zombies show the nervousness that we have about other people, that you can never be sure if your neighbor is with you or against you. The idea that any moment someone could turn on you says something about the cynicism of the early 21st century. So, strangers, what did we learn today? We learned that if a zombie apocalypse really did happen, your chances of surviving are slim to none. But that doesn't mean that you should give up so easily. I mean, hey, you're most likely gonna become zombie shit, but if you're prepared, you might last a little bit longer than your neighbor Terry, who just burned down his house because he used a flamethrower that he had stashed in his basement. We also learned that you probably shouldn't piss off anyone who lives in Haiti, because the last thing you want is to be buried alive, and watch the dirt being shoveled onto your casket with absolutely zero way of calling for help. And lastly, we learned that being in a populated state during a zombie apocalypse may sound like a good idea, you know, strength in numbers. But you may not have that same tune when the numbers flip and Manhattan turns into a zombie buffet. I know that hanging out on a Saturday night in the parking lot of your only bowling alley within a hundred square miles might not sound like a good time, but I can guarantee you the beer is cheap, the land is vast, and the headshots are aplenty. Yeehaw! Today's
1: horror tip comes to us from the film Zombieland, and we just couldn't think of a better movie to take tips from for this episode, so I guess we'll give you a few. When in doubt, know your way out. You definitely don't want to be stuck in a building with impending doom on the other side of the wall and no way to escape. Next is beware of bathrooms. You don't want to get caught with your pants down. It's embarrassing and very deadly. And last, confirm your kills. Because what looks dead isn't always dead.
0: Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Dark Parts. As if we need
1: something to be afraid of other than what we're already afraid of in this world.
0: Yeah, true. And, you know, this one wasn't as scary, but I thought it was really fun, you know, because there are so many people who love zombies. Well, don't
1: you remember when COVID first hit and people were talking about that, like saying that this could be like what wipes off the human race, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, I kind of remember that. And people, wipes out, not wipes off. There were some people that were actually comparing COVID to, like, a zombie apocalypse. Like, that might, like, COVID might lead to a zombie apocalypse. Right. And it's like, wow, that's really fucking scary. That was
1: really scary. I remember that when we knew absolutely nothing. So thank you guys so much for tuning in today. So glad that we are back after a little Thanksgiving break. Hope you guys had a good holiday. And um, we're going to have some kind of fun... Episodes. Remember when we did the, oh God, what was it? Greta and the Yule
0: Lads? Oh, Grilla and the Grilla Yule Lads. Grilla and the Yule yeah. Lads. Yeah. We
1: should try to find another like Christmassy one that's not too well known, like not something, maybe Krampus, but I know that's super well known. If, if you guys know of any more obscure ones, please let us know. Email us, thedarkpartspodcast at gmail.com. We love getting suggestions from you guys, um, but we do have some really
0: good episodes coming up. Yeah, we do have some good ones, but yeah, always taking suggestions, especially for like winter time ones. I'm always trying to like, I'm trying to coordinate my episodes for like the time of year. So hopefully uh, we can uh, get some good suggestions for this winter.
1: Yes, we have a couple good ones for the winter, but I feel like we always need more. So please let us know. Thanks for tuning in. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.
0: All right, guys, we'll see you next time. In the Dark Parts.